Turn with me in your Bibles to, to uh, Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. Um, if you're just joining us today, we are in a series called The Air We Breathe, in which we're just identifying some of the thought patterns that exist in our culture that, that can creep into a congregation and leave us, uh, it kind of catches us unaware. Uh, on week one, I talked about how these are almost like the carbon monoxide sins. So you, you have a carbon monoxide detector in your house. If you don't, you need to do that on your way home today. Uh, you should have one of those in your house. Uh, and carbon monoxide is so dangerous because it's, it's relatively uh, indiscernible. You, you don't smell it, you don't see it, uh, and yet it'll wreak havoc on a family. And so you need to have some detectors that are going off. Uh, and so right now we're identifying some of the, the subtle, almost carbon monoxide-like sins that can creep into our thinking because out in the culture, it's really the, it's the air that we breathe. It's, it's normal, and so it feels normal to bring it in here with us. So we talked about, for example, tribalism. Um, that was what we talked about on our second week. We talked about the idolization of our feelings last Sunday and how that can creep in here. Today we're turning to one that I would argue is probably even more subtle than the other two. And therefore it can, it can be even more dangerous because it doesn't sound dangerous at all. Today we're talking about self-reliance. Self-reliance. And for example, as I read that, a lot of us are thinking, well, that doesn't, that doesn't sound so bad at all. Actually, that sounds pretty good. It sounds like kind of what I'm after. Right, well, well, track with me here, because that's part of why it can be so dangerous. In our culture, there is nothing more impressive than a person who doesn't need anybody. Right, we celebrate the figures who, who achieve a great success, and as they talk about what's happened, you know, they, they say, I didn't get any help from my family, I didn't get any help from my friends, I had to do this on my own. And there's something in us that says, whoa, well, that's, that's success, right? That's who I want to be. Nothing would be greater than to be a person who never ever needs anyone. True? Well, the problem is the flip side of that coin is also true. If, if the greatest thing is to be someone who never needs someone, then the worst thing is to be someone who does. And so suddenly asking for help feels like uh, waving the flag and admitting I'm not fully human. Like, I'm, not, I'm not a real grown-up, right? I, I can't do it on my own. I need help from others. And if you've ever felt that little pang of shame when you ask for help, that is a, an indicator, that's an evidence that this way of thinking has already crept into your heart and into your mind. And this morning I'm asking the question, does that way of thinking belong in your mind? Is that what we were made for? Is, is it really the case that God wants you to be someone who never needs anyone else because didn't he say on the, the second page in your Bible, it is not good that man should be alone? Isn't that the thing he said when he looked at the very first man? That was, that was his assessment. It is not good that the man should be alone. That was before the fall. That was before sin. So maybe, just maybe, this thing that we're striving for, this target that we're aiming at, is wrong. And maybe the reason we're aiming at it is because we've been shaped by our culture more than we realize. You were not designed to be self-sufficient. In fact, we're going to see in our text today that each and every one of us in this room are strategically deficient. And those deficiencies are for your good, not something that you should be ashamed of. That's counterintuitive. That flies in the face of everything that we've been taught in our culture. It's not the air we breathe, but it is what we learn in God's word. So to that end, I want to invite you to look with me to Romans chapter 12. 
We're going to be reading verses 1 to 8. Our passage this morning is verses 3 to 8, but I wanted to start at verse 1 just so that we could follow the flow of Paul's argument. Hear now God's holy, inspired, inerrant, living, and active word to us today. Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. I want you to pause there. So remember, week one of our series, we preached on those two verses. And what we saw in that first sermon was that Paul is saying here that that right worship really is right living. It's to live as a living sacrifice. And if we want to live rightly, then we need to think rightly. We don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you can discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. So that's what he was saying in verses 1 to 2. If you want to worship God rightly, if you want to, you need to live rightly and you need to think rightly. Well, now he comes into verse 3, and this is, you could say, the first application of that principle. So look with me now. We're going to read verses 3 to 8. For, Paul says, by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, And the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, The one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So as I said, he's he's teaching us about right worship, right living, right thinking. So he's been talking about this renewal of the mind that helps me to live the way I'm supposed to live. And here in his first application, the very first place he turns, interestingly enough, is to the community of faith. That's interesting. If you want to see, if if your mind is really renewed, if you are being transformed, then you will see evidence of it by the way that you interact with other people. It's almost as if at the very beginning of this renewed mind, God brings us back to Genesis 2 where we look and we agree with his assessment. It is not good for man to be alone. When I start to see that, I'm thinking rightly. Commentator Douglas Moo notes here, the renewed mind, Paul suggests, will take the form of right thinking about ourselves. Thus, he wants us to recognize that the transformation of character is seen especially in our relationships with one another. See, God, as he's renewing our mind, he's making us truly human again. He's making us truly what we were made to be. And we're seeing that as we become who we were made to be, we were made to be in relationship with one another. So if we're living a kind of an individualistic, silo, self-reliant, I have to do everything in my own strength life, we are not who God made us to be. The more you try to live that life, the more you're going to feel the dissonance because that's not who your maker made you to be. So he's bringing us into relationship. And right here in the overflow of that thinking, we're, we're seeing ourselves the way we should. 
So that's what the, the renewal of my mind changes the way that I see myself. That's what we're going to see in this passage. If that feels a little bit pie in the sky, it's going to come down to earth in just a moment. We're going to ask the question, how does the renewal of my mind change my perception of myself? Okay, and like I said, this, we're, it's going to get very simple. Three points. First, it right-sizes me. So as God renews my mind, as the Holy Spirit applies the Word of God and, and shapes my mind, it helps me to see myself rightly. We see this in verse 3. Look again. Paul writes, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself or herself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. See, one of the best ways to, to ruin community, one of the best ways to make sure that you don't fit into a community is to indulge a lofty opinion of yourself, is to think of yourself more highly than you ought. That destroys community. Now, you might not find that in, in the self-help books on the bookshelf, but, but that's what Paul's saying in the Word of God. He's essentially saying, brothers and sisters, if you want to be a living sacrifice for God, then you need to come back to reality when it comes to your thinking about yourself. Well, here's a question. What is reality? That's why we need a renewed mind, because what is reality about me? I don't know. I've got a thousand and one voices telling me all kinds of things about myself. Like I said, there's the books on the shelf telling me that I, need, I can do anything. and it, There's no limit to my potential, and I've, I've got a voice on the inside that says, actually, you're garbage, and I've got my mom and dad saying in my culture and the TV, what is reality? Well, that's why Paul says at the end of verse 3, look, I'm going to read verse 3 again. Where do we find reality? Listen. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. How? Each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. So faith is the secret to not thinking of myself too highly and thinking of myself with sober judgment. It's not too lowly either. It's only with faith that I can see myself for who I really am. This is the faith that, that looks to the word of God and sees that God is the creator. And I'm actually, I'm just a creature. I, I answer to him. It's the faith that looks to, to the law of God. And even looks to, to the law that he's hidden in my heart and says, I'm a, I'm a sinner who needs a savior. This is the faith that looks to the cross. And believes that God so loved the world that he sent his son. That whoever believes in him would not perish. But would have everlasting life. Jesus took my sin and he paid for it on that cross. It's the faith that looks to the empty tomb and sees resurrection. And says I have a hope that can see beyond the grave. It's the faith that looks to the word of God and says. Whatever God says in here about me is true. Even if all of the voices out there and even the voices in here, even if all of those other voices are saying contrary things, faith looks to the word of God and says, this is telling me the truth about who I am and what I'm meant to be. And Paul says, a renewed mind receives faith from God and therefore sees itself appropriately. That's the secret to having a right view of myself. And as I'm engaging faith, as I'm, as I'm seeing all of these things, I'm seeing that I'm actually, I'm not a self-made man. I'm not supposed to be. I'm not the center of the universe. I'm not supposed to be. I don't have all of the answers. I don't have all of the gifts. I can't do everything. I am who God says that I am. And I see here, actually, I am 
made in the image of God. I, I've been given a glorious assignment that, that I can't do in my own strength, that I can only do in his strength with his people. So, I, so I'm not dirt, right? I'm an image bearer of God, and that corrects some of the nasty voices inside of me. But correcting some of the, the voices outside of me that try and puff me up, I see here that I need God, and I need all of you. I fundamentally need. Faith enables me to see that. A renewed mind enables me to see that. It right-sizes me. And if you look ahead to verse 4, this is, we're going to shape out some of that right-sizing. He says, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. We'll pause there. As he's being right-sized, as I'm being right-sized, I'm realizing, wait a second, just like in my body, how like, my hand does things my feet can't do, in the same way, it's, that's the body of Christ. There are things I can't do. I'm, I'm limited. So having a right view of myself means seeing that I am gloriously and wonderfully and intentionally limited. Have you ever tried to pour a cup of coffee with your feet? I wouldn't suggest it. It's not going to work very well, right? My hands do that. My feet don't do that very well. And that's okay because my feet do some wonderful things. You ever tried to run a 100-meter sprint with your hands? Some people probably could and some people could probably beat me in a 100-meter sprint on their hands. But it's not the way it's supposed to be, right? And we're the same way. Each of us can do things, but each of us have a long laundry list of things we can't do. And that's by design. And a renewed mind allows me to see that and not feel threatened by it or angry about that but to rest in it. I want, to, I'm, I want to move on, but before I do, I just want to maybe press this for just a second. Because I imagine some of you came in here today and you came in exhausted, carrying a heavy burden. And I'm going to guess that you probably didn't even realize what burden you were carrying. Like you came in wiped and, and just uh, exasperated, and yet you probably couldn't put your finger on what exactly it was. I would argue that maybe, just maybe, some of you came in carrying this. That everywhere else you've been hearing this thing that you are supposed to be able to do everything. But of course you can't. And so you lie awake at night and you feel so overwhelmed and so insecure and so absolutely exhausted. And maybe you're a woman and you're like, man, I I have to be a mother and I have to be a wife and I have to be a successful career woman who's driven. And and I have to have like an amazing uh, social media feed where everybody can see all my recreational stuff. Oh, and I also need to be an avid reader and, and I have to be everything that all these other people are. And if I'm not able to be all of that simultaneously at the same time, then I'm probably not as much a woman as the rest of them. And that's exhausting. And it's the same with the men. We, we come in thinking, I have to be able to do every single thing. I'll tell you, I feel this insecurity anytime something in my house breaks. You, you probably could assume this just by looking at me. I'm not a very handy man. And I feel that insecurity every time. And it, it makes me not just insecure, it makes me angry. It makes me resentful of the fact that I can't do these things. I can't fix it. I'm going to have to ask for help, which makes me a loser. And, and what Paul's teaching us here is, no, it doesn't. It makes you a human. And actually, it's by design. Because you're meant to ask for help. You're meant to need other people. And they're meant to need you. So when, I, when my mind is, is renewed... It right-sizes me. That's where it begins. But now we're going to move to the second point. As my mind is renewed, it reorients me. Reorients me. You ever been lost in the woods? Probably not. 
But maybe some of you, not me, but some of you know how to use a compass. You get lost in the woods and it's like, where do I go? And then you got your compass and due north, okay, I'm reoriented now. I'm, I'm going to move in that direction. Or if you're a, just a bad driver like me, once you get, it's like, there's the water tower. Okay, I need to be moving somehow that way. I need a reorientation. Well, that's what Paul's saying here. We need to be redirected, reoriented. And we see it in verse 5. He says, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Because you see that last part about how limited we are would be terribly bad news if it weren't for this part that follows. So you are limited. There are things you can't do. However, God has designed the world and the church in such a way that you don't need to do everything. You just need to do your part because you're designed to function in team. And that is the reorientation that we need. So let's go back to the analogy of the body. Paul uses these analogies because they're effective. He used it in 1 Corinthians 12 too. We use that uh, when we welcome the addicts into membership. He thinks this is a good analogy. And I don't know if you've ever thought about how miraculous it is that your body does what it does, but it is pretty miraculous. I have a friend who helps design the machines that, if you ever watch How Things Work, you know those crazy complex machines where it's like if this part spews out the chocolate and this part freezes the chocolate and then this wraps the chocolate and it twists the chocolate. And all of these things are, and there's a conveyor belt. The whole thing is just working exactly right. If it was off even a little bit, it would be disastrous. But those are complicated machines to build. Well, guess what? None of those machines hold a candle to this machine in front of you. Like, your body's doing stuff right now that would blow our minds. We only understand some of it. And we're not, like, telling, I'm not telling my stomach to digest my breakfast right now. It's just happening. And intestines are doing stuff. It's gross. I want to move away from the intestine analogy. Don't be the best. But my body's doing stuff, right? And it just happens instinctively. Now, staying on this analogy, imagine for a moment... Imagine for a moment that each member of my body did have a brain like this one. And each member of my body started to think about itself the way that we think about ourselves. And so suddenly I've got hands and feet that are, are feeling jealous and feeling insecure. And they're, they're resenting the fact that I was made. I didn't choose to be born a foot. Now I've got to be a foot. I've got to do foot things. Or I, I, want to be, I want to be an elbow. I want to do elbow stuff. Imagine for a moment that your body functioned that way. And one day you go to reach for a coffee cup. But your right elbow is just like, forget this, I'm the coffee guy. And your, your left ear is like, I'm the coffee guy. And your whole body and your feet lunge up. You get kicked out of the coffee shop pretty quickly, right? And you'd be burned all over your body. It'd be, it'd be chaos. And it's a ridiculous analogy, except that isn't that what we see in the church all the time? Like how many churches have imploded because of that ridiculous analogy playing out in real life? I want to lead. No, I want to lead. No, I'm going to lead. And you get these little factions and fractions and then you have some big AGM where there's a coup and everybody's fighting over it. No, I want to do that thing. Or, or somebody's like, I want to teach. And so they start like a little secret study in their basement and all of a sudden you get this little like mutiny forming and it all falls apart. Some of you have been a part of churches that have, have ruptured and split over the chaos. Or you get, or you get Pastors up at the front who are like, you know what I am? I'm the hand, the foot, the elbow, and the knee. I do everything, and we're not doing anything unless I'm controlling it. And then you get these churches that are so isolated and limited. And that is just as awkward and embarrassing and wrong as the guy spilling coffee all over himself because his limbs. God says, that's not how you're supposed to work. I made you to do something, and you to do something, and you to do something. Do your thing together. When I see myself through the eyes of faith, when I think rightly about myself with a renewed mind, 
I don't believe the lie that I need to do everything. Right? That lie that I'm hearing all out there, I'm able to say, no, that is a lie. It doesn't threaten me that there are things I can't do. It enables me to see the beauty and the significance of the things that I have been called to do. The renewed mind allows me to rest and trust that Jesus is building his church and that he's going to use me toward that end, but he doesn't need me because I'm a piece, not the whole. What I need then is a reorientation with the design that God has, has built into the fabric of my DNA and into the fabric of the world and the church. So a little analogy, an illustration. When I returned back from uh, our vacation, Amanda and I, we jumped right into Camp Redeemer. And it was such a, an amazing experience to show up and they hand us a memory verse song that's already been written and it's been divided up like day by day what we need to do. They led us back to the forget-me-not forest which had already been built and all we had to do was teach. And so I look around and I'm teaching. And as I go through it today, I'm seeing women using this, their amazing administrative skills. And, and then I, people, men and women come in and they're using their amazing teaching skills as they, as they disciple these little guys. And I see people with these gifts of mercy working one-on-one with, with high-need high students. And I see these people with gifts of service assembling the tents and tearing it all down. And that's just to name a few of the gifts that were on display that day. And here I am, and all I'm doing is teaching. I'm just a part. And it was this beautiful reminder that, man, that's what I am. Just, I'm just a piece. I'm just a piece. I'm so glad to be a part of what God is doing. But I don't need to bear the burden of everything. I'm not designed to. Because he's got a healthy body here under Christ functioning in this way. Third and finally, when I see myself with this renewed mind, it releases me. We see this in verses 6 to 8. So he says, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Now, We're going to work through that list and just make sure we're understanding each of the gifts he's highlighting. But before I do, I want to be clear. Uh, He's got lists of spiritual gifts elsewhere. 1 Corinthians 12, he mentions a number of them. Ephesians 4, he mentions a number of them. And if you look at those lists, you're going to notice that they're different. They're different lists, which tells us that he's not meaning to make a comprehensive list in any of those places. He's just getting us thinking about the plurality of people that are represented in the body of Christ. So if I go through this and you're like, well, I didn't hear my gift on that list, that's fine because he's not giving a comprehensive list. He's just getting us started in this thinking. And he begins with this gift of prophecy, which is a, a great place to start because it's the gift that probably most of us need some thinking about. It, it makes us feel uncomfortable. We immediately think about the Old Testament prophets who are, who are saying like, thus saith the Lord, and people are writing it down. Well, that's not the gift of prophecy that we see on display in the New Testament But if the gift of prophecy makes you uncomfortable, you need to know we see a lot of the gift of prophecy in the New Testament. The book of Acts is going to confront us with this reality a number of times. Commentator, uh, who is this? Douglas Moo again. He says, New Testament prophecy involved proclaiming to the community information that God had revealed to the prophet for the church's edification. The truth revealed by the prophet did not come with the authority of the truth taught by the apostles. That's, That's key. For prophetic speech was to be scrutinized by other prophets. And he says that's what we see in 1 Corinthians 14. 
So in the New Testament, the gift of prophecy comes out not as authoritative, but it comes out as, as subject to the authority of, of God's word as revealed by the apostles and the Old Testament prophets. And it's to be scrutinized, as we see in 1 Corinthians 14. And all of that might sound pie in the sky, but maybe I could flesh it out with an example of how I saw this done beautifully in our own context. So Amanda and I, we, were, we had had two children, and we were really not sure if we would have a third, uh, little Noel. We, just, uh, we were looking at our life circumstances. Finances were pretty tight at the time. Amanda actually had a career that was really fulfilling and really lucrative. And so we thought, maybe this is God's way of saying, close the door. And so we were really praying about it. And privately, we weren't talking to other people about it. It was just like an in-house Denbach thing. Like, what are we going to do? And one Sunday after the service, uh, a brother pulled us aside, and he pulled me aside. And he said, hey, Levi, just, this might feel weird, but I felt like I needed to share this with you. He said, last night I had a dream. I had a dream, and there, was, uh, there were these two hands coming up out of bubbly water, and they came up out of the water, and it was women's hands, and they were holding a baby. He says, and then I woke up, and God immediately put you and Amanda on my mind. And he brought to my mind the verse, she will be saved through childbearing. And he said, that felt weird. Do with that what you will. I just, I wanted to, I wanted to pass that on to you. And so I went home and I just shared with Amanda, hey, this is really weird. Somebody pulled me aside and they said this. And as we prayed about it, we both felt like, I think that this is God showing us that this is the next, we need to trust him. We need to trust him. Even though this career is looking really lucrative and cool, we need to trust that he's got something good for us here. And we did. And praise God that we did. Four years later, I'm glad that you all get to enjoy and experience the Noel experience. Like she, our lives would, it would be, uh, I can't even imagine our life without her. And, and I can point back to that one moment when that one brother just was obedient to sharing what the Lord laid on his heart. I want to highlight some things he did really well. He didn't come up and say, thus saith the Lord. He said, I think God's leading me to share this with you. He didn't come up and, and, and say something that like contradicts the scriptures. He said something and he even pointed to, I, here's what the Bible says and I wonder if this applies. And then he didn't like coerce it into us. He walked away with humility and said, hey, you know what, do with that what you will. I just felt like I should share it. And that's a wonderful example of how the gift of prophecy can be used in the church as the Lord lays things on our hearts, on any of our hearts. And then we share those with others in humility under the authority of the scriptures. Prophecy. We're going to move faster through the other ones, but I thought that one might leave us squirming a little bit. Because next, Paul mentions service. The most likely, uh, this is most likely a reference to the service of benevolence in the church, the type that deacons attended to. Now, I'm not arguing that Paul was putting this list in order in terms of most important, least important. In fact, that would be the opposite of what he's after here. But I do think it's interesting and intentional that he puts service in between prophecy and then teaching and exhortation, which is the next thing on the list. That's like preaching. He, he puts service right in between these two gifts that we often esteem very highly. And I would argue that he's doing this because he wants us to see the inherent value in the gift of service. Because sometimes, we, sometimes there's a lie that the enemy throws at us. That if you're not doing your gift up on the stage, then your gift isn't as important. I think Paul's undermining that here. It's like, oh no, this is, this is wildly important. Like when you're changing diapers in the nursery and nobody sees that, but that is, that is wildly important. And when you're out in the parking lot in the rain, helping people to fit in so that people can come in, or when you're setting up chairs early in the morning so that we have a place to sit, when you're doing these acts of service, 
That stuff matters. And so if the enemy starts whispering, nobody values this, nobody cares about this, just remember what Jesus said. Because he said, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. So that service, that is a spiritual gift for the church. And if I could just encourage us, let's, let's have a culture where we are thanking and encouraging people for using those gifts. I get plenty of encouragement for preaching. In fact, probably too much. So let's scale back some of that. Glad that it was helpful. But maybe find the guy who was like sweating as he set up the chair that you're sitting in today and thank him too, right? Because that's a gift from God to the church. Next, Paul lists teaching and exhortation. These two gifts are similar, but they're not the same. They're, they're distinct gifts on the list. So the gift of teaching is, is primarily about conveying information. So if you've ever sat in a classroom, you know that that's what the teacher's doing. They're, they've got this information and they're trying to get it from here into your brain. Whereas exhortation is like preaching. Like, where really, I'm aiming for your heart. I'm, I'm aiming to, to mobilize you, to stir you. Uh, one commentator notes, Matthew Henry, not a commentator, Matthew Henry says, many that are very accurate in teaching may yet be very cold and unskillful in exhorting. And on the contrary, the one requires, requires a clearer head, the other a warmer heart. So I've tried teaching in the classroom setting, not my gift. Um, I wind up flailing my arms around and sometimes I got like a little tear going and people, that's, they're like, this is not the place for that. What are you doing? I feel so uncomfortable. And likewise, I've sat through sermons when, it, when someone with the gift of teaching gets up and well, we're going to look at, their voice doesn't affect it. But you come away thinking, I learned a lot, but that felt very dry and cold. Paul says, hey, both of those are gifts and you need both in the church. They're distinct. Next, he moves on to the one who contributes. So some people are given the gift of earning and sharing. Pause, I want you to hear that. Some people are given the gift, the spiritual gift of earning and sharing. Sometimes I worry that, that we as a church, not just us, but North America, that we can sometimes leave people thinking that, you know, if I'm a successful businessman or a successful businesswoman, if I've been, been given the ability to, to earn a healthy income, then maybe I've done something wrong. Like, maybe, I, maybe that's not a spiritual thing to do, to, like, do my job really well and be compensated. Here he's saying, no, actually, the ability to earn is a gift from God. It's the precursor to being able to contribute and to share and to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And he says, do it generously. Meaning, so don't do it, don't do it begrudgingly. Don't do it because, you know, you feel obligated to do it. But if God's blessed you to be able to earn, then, then share. And recognize as you do that, that that is a spiritual gift from God to the church. Just as important as benevolence. In fact, you can't do the benevolence unless you have some money to buy the bread with. Just as important as the teaching. Because the sermon gets an awful lot worse if the pastor is also full-time garbage man on the side. Which is what I would do. If ever you stopped paying me, I'd be a full-time garbage man because I loved that. But the sermons would definitely be worse. So contribute. That's a gift. Next, he moves to the one who leads. Paul is almost certainly referring here to the leadership within the church. That is the elders, the overseers, the deacons. He says, That's a, that is a spiritual gift. And you need it. And he says to those who lead, if you have that gift, lead with zeal. Meaning, you need to, you need to be driven. You need to go for it. Because, you know, the higher up you are in, in leadership, I use higher not because you're like in a tier, but when you're in leadership, there are fewer people who are looking over you. Fewer people over your shoulder assessing your work. Which means, boy, you need to, you need to be zealous. You need to work hard. You need to remember that God is looking over your shoulder. Right? And you need to work accordingly. 
that he's going to judge and reward according to the work that he sees in you. So be zealous. And church, when you have elders and overseers and pastors, recognize them as a gift from God to the church. And finally, Paul refers to those who do acts of mercy. He calls them to do so with cheerfulness. Mercy is a word for like a, a kindness that someone doesn't deserve. So acts of mercy is when you do things for people that, that they don't inherently deserve, that they can't repay. It's like inviting someone to your home who's not going to be able to return the favor. James highlights that when he writes his letter. It's extending generosity to the poor, kindness to the neglected, love to the unlovable, going and serving the widow. It's the kind of ministry that happens behind the scenes when nobody's looking. And it's just as much a spiritual gift as the things that happen when everyone's looking. I, I think it's, it's going to be a challenge for those of us who have been gifted in, in ways that we serve publicly. Like for me, it's, it's easy to motivate myself to do this because I know there's going to be a hundred people looking back at me waiting for me to do this. But for some of you, the gift that God's given you is something that's going to happen when nobody's looking. It's something that you're going to exercise out behind all the spotlight and you're going to have different obstacles that I have. I'm going to struggle with things like pride. You're going to struggle with things like resentment and insecurity. And we need the Lord's help. He says, if you've been given the gift of mercy, do it with cheerfulness. So don't ever be the person that's just like, oh, now I've got to make another lasagna for that sick lady. Don't, he says, that's not how you exercise the gift of mercy. Right? And don't ever be the person who goes and you like rake your neighbor's lawn and they come out and you're just like, well, I noticed that you're so old. I thought, who's going to rake your leaves? Might as well be me. Thanks. Enjoy your mercy. Like that. He says, no, do it. There's nothing better than when you look in someone's eyes and you see that they just did this because they love me. Like they're really happy to have done this thing for me. So he says, be that person. The world needs more of that. The church needs more of that. So, as I said, he's not listing every gift but he's trying to stimulate our brains to think about the various ways that every single one of us Christians have been gifted to serve the body of Christ. And he's not just doing this so that we can work through the list and say, okay, I understand that, I understand that. No, he's he's got a purpose. Look at verse 6. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, what does he say? Let us use them. Right, so here he's been talking about how you need to be right sized, you need to be reoriented, you need to see that you fit with the body. And right now, here he's saying, and seeing all of this, it releases you now to do what you need to do. You ever have a, a, a list of things to do that's like 30 things, and what do you wind up doing? You do nothing. You just sit there, just like, I can't do it, it's just too much. Like, sometimes you're, you have that in your life. I think it's the same as Christians. Sometimes you look around and you're like, well, I can't, I can't do that, and I can't do this, and I can't, it's, it's, it's overwhelming. Well, he says, stop feeling so overwhelmed. Focus. See the thing that God has made you to do. Like, see that. He made you specifically for that. They can't do that, and he can't do that, and she can't do it. But you can, and God has gifted you to do that, and he's given you to the church to do that. And so be released. Like, lean into that one thing with all you've got. There's something so profound about a life that is lived well, someone who gives themselves doggedly to this one thing. Like I, I hope someday when, when there are people at my funeral, I hope that one of the things they'll say is that, man, he gave himself doggedly to that one thing that he could do. He never learned how to fix the cupboards. You know, nobody is going to be in my eulogy being like, well, he was quite a handyman. Nobody saw that coming. That's probably not going to be my story. But I hope, I hope by God's grace they'll say, he did that one thing and he gave his life to it. It releases us. Getting back to the analogy of the body, 
talked about our, you know, you can't pour a cup of coffee with your feet. Problem is, there are some people in the world that they don't have arms, they don't have hands, and so how do they pour a cup of coffee? I bet some of them do pour a cup of coffee with their feet. I, I bet it's, it's clumsy and difficult, but I bet they've learned how to do it. Or they don't pour coffee, or they have somebody else do it for them. There are those sad instances in the world. Similarly in the church, there are things that we could be doing. Things that I would argue we should be doing, but that currently we are not doing. Or that we're doing clumsily. Because there are just certain parts of the body that, that aren't plugged in yet. And so we're walking around without the hand or we're walking around without the, the foot. And for as long as that's the case, we'll be, we'll be working clumsily for the glory of God. But I celebrate when we see more members just coming into the body and plugging in their gifts. So do you have gifts? Paul says in verse 6, let us use them. Are you able to teach? Boy, there are opportunities to teach. I'm, there are like... 75 opportunities to teach back there. There's, the Lord has blessed us with all of these kids who are ready to hear the gospel and, and have that taught to them. Or Thursday night at Life Together, there's chances to teach the adults and chances to teach with the kids. Are you able to lead? Boy, we need leaders. Brothers, we need elders and overseers in this church. Are you able to serve in acts of mercy? One area where you could use that, the lighthouse is always looking for volunteers. And there are so many opportunities there to, to bless people, to look them in the eye with, with charity and kindness and love as you serve their needs. And there's people in your neighborhood that need it too. Are you gifted in hospitality? There are people in this room right now who have never once, never once been invited into somebody's house for lunch or dinner. Let today be the day that that changes. Like open up your home and invite someone in. Let them feel loved and encouraged. Self-reliance says, I don't need anyone. But a renewed mind says, I do need and have the family of God. Self-reliance says, I, I have to do everything. Christianity says, no, I get to do what God has gifted and called me to do. And when that self-reliant thinking creeps into this place, the entire body suffers for it. We need each other. And that's by design. So, show up. Believe your ego at the door. Benefit from the gifts that other people have. Contribute with the gifts that you have. In a world full of people trying to get by in their own strength, let's strive to be a compelling example of life as God intends it to be because it is not good for man to be alone. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for just the opportunity to be together, to sit under your word, Lord, to hear your truth, um, Lord, I pray that, that everything that was in conformity, what your word says, Lord, everything that I said that, that lines up correctly with your truth, I pray that you would just press it into our hearts. Lord, and we don't want to just be hearers of the word, as James tells us. James tells us we want to be doers of the word. And so, Lord, today I pray, if there are people here who have been carrying that heavy burden and trying to do it all in their own strength, I pray that you would release them from that lie of the evil one. They would see themselves for who they are. Lord, if there's anyone here who has been hearing the lie of the evil one and feeling resentment for all the things that they want to do but can't do, Lord, I pray that you would release them and direct them to the things that you've gifted them to do. And Lord, I pray that they would see the beauty and the worth and the value of it. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be a people who celebrate all of the gifts. Lord, who encourage one another. Lord, that this would be a place where, uh, Lord, that those gifts that maybe happen in the background or behind the scenes, that they would that they would be receiving honor, that they would be encouraged and seeing and hearing 
that they belong in the body of Christ. Lord, and for those who maybe have gifts but have been sitting on them for various reasons, maybe, maybe uh, insecurity or maybe um, never, never thought of it or maybe bad reasons of, of, of laziness and neglect, Lord, I pray that you would just mobilize us to see how it is that you have equipped us to, to further your kingdom and the things that you're doing in this world. Help us to function together. I pray that we would just day by day look at ourselves as a people and see something that resembles these human bodies where all of the different parts are instinctively doing the things that they're gifted to do. Lord, there's strength there. There's function there. Um, there's purpose there. And it's how you've designed us, Lord. So help us, I pray. Guard us against all of the, all of the things that would keep that from happening and particularly against this lie of, of self-reliance. Lord, we love you. And we pray a blessing on our time together. Help us now as we respond. In Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Worship team, would you lead us?